Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. Am I on? Oh, yeah, I can hear myself now. Well, it's a beautiful day here in the high desert of California. And it is a blessing to be here in the house of God with you, brothers and sisters. Well, those two songs were, as always, the music here I find excellent and worshipful, and it does glory, it does give glory to God. One of the things I would like to, um, what, what was what the song said, whom the sun sets free is free indeed, and that's because Jesus paid it all. Praise God. They speak to our hearts through such glorious hymns and songs. Um, speaking of hymns and psalms, uh, we're going to be in Psalm 40 this morning, so I invite you to take your Bibles out. And turn with me to Psalm 40. And as usual, I'm wondering why are the all the text so small and I can hardly read it. And it's because I always forget to put my glasses on. And then all of a sudden, things come into clarity, which is a good thing. So, before we begin, I um, believe we should begin with a word of prayer. So, uh, would you take a moment and bow your heads with me. Father in heaven, we look forward this morning to what you're going to do. We thank you for all that you have done in helping us and assisting us in praise and worship of your great name. And we would pray now, Father, that you help in the time of preaching, Father, that you will enable me to bring forth what you have prepared for us to hear this day. Father, we ask that you would bless your name in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to be in Psalm 40. Um, an interesting psalm as I struggled to determine what God was going to lead me to uh, talk this morning, preach to you this morning. Um, I went back and forth on several things, but just the, the, the compass of my heart kept coming back to Psalm 40. I'm not sure why. Um, it's an interesting psalm. It's um, Actually, it's quite terrifying to me, but because of the, the breath of what it covers in, um, in terms of what it speaks about. Um, in some ways, it's a very simple psalm, but in many ways, it's also quite a deep psalm. Psalm 40 is a psalm of David. It's about his needs and how the Lord met his needs. It's also a Masonic psalm. It's uh, quoted in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 5 through 9, which Brother Ron read to us this morning. It speaks of David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, which we'll look more closely at when we get to those verses. There's no specific period in David's ministry that this time points to. Some of the psalms that David wrote are very specific about the time that he's in the, in the circumstances to why he's writing this particular psalm, but this one doesn't have that in it. It seems to be in um, his, when, in his king, kingdom period when he was king of Israel, and... Um, um, during that time when he was uh, struggling uh, with uh, all the things it takes to be king, you have enemies within and without and rivalries and all the many burdens of um, being called to lead the great nation of Israel. And uh, David had seen many of them, as I'm sure most of you um, have learned in uh, read through reading the Bible, that David's life was not an easy one. He was a shepherd boy brought up in Bethlehem, the son of Jesse, the youngest one, um, he was sent out into the fields to tend the sheep. And then one day um, when the prophet Nathan came to 
anoint a new king of Israel while there was still a sitting king in Israel, uh, Saul. Um, Nathan came and um, as Jesse paraded each of his sons in front of uh, Nathan the prophet, he shook his head each time. And, and um, from manly perspective, we would look at each one of them, and they were big and strong and handsome, and they go, oh, not that one. They went, well, surely it must be the next one. And they'd see that one and be no. And finally, David comes, and he's a scrawny kid who's out in the fields taking care of the, sh uh, the sheep. And um, he probably uh, was dusty and dirty, and um, they had to hustle him in, so probably even sweaty too. Um, and he comes before Nathan the prophet, and he is whom God raised up to be the next king of Israel. And Nathan anoints him there um, to become the next king of Israel. But it wasn't. Then we go to Jerusalem and, oh, he gets anointed. No, now he's um, in fear of his life because Saul, the current reigning king, whom God has, who's um, disobeyed God and, and is no longer, and is, God is taking the kingdom away from him, didn't happen quickly. It was a period of time. And to period of time also where um, King Saul was actively pursuing David, trying to take his life. So that was, um, wow, it would be a very difficult thing. And that's how his uh, ministry, uh, I mean his, his kingship or leading Israel begins. And then, of course, he is eventually anointed king. And um, there's many... Uh, wars and battles that he has to go out and fight, including internal battles that he struggles with and um, rivalries in his own family because in the process of being a king, sometimes you have to make alliances with countries you don't want. And in Middle Eastern culture, sometimes that was through making um, marriages that were to uh, people that you weren't necessarily um, in love with, you know, and so David did make several alliances that way, and that brought strife into his family, and then the whole family dynamic was, you know, crazy and messed up and difficult, and so you can imagine David's kingship was um, difficult, but, God, but David was a man after God's own heart, and he wrote a significant number of the Psalms. Um, there's 150 Psalms in our Bible, and uh, at least 73 have his name associated with them as a psalm of David or a psalm or, or, or written by David. Um, 75, they think, and there's possibly even 10 more um, that are not attributed to anyone, but maybe Davidic psalms. So he definitely wrote a great portion of the psalms. Um, there's also, uh, uh, well, I, you know, all that wasn't even in my notes. I just went off on a tangent. So, you know. I always have to be careful because when I get talking, I'm not always sure exactly where what I'm going to say. Uh, I pray God that it would glorify him in all that we say and do this morning. So I'm going to get back on the right track and get back to Psalm 40, which is a Davidic psalm we've already discussed, and we're going to look at it in three parts. So we're going to begin in part one, verses one through five. So I have my Bible here, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 with you, starting with verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. 
Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds and thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. Well, verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord, is a mouthful because none of us like waiting. We want everything to happen extremely quick, and particularly in our current society where we have the answers to everything are a cell phone away, you know, Google and everything, we can have our answers right away. Uh, we can even order our food and drive to the drive through and pick it up right away. So waiting is not something that our culture is very adept at doing any longer. But notice it didn't, it's, it, it, it's described with an adverb, how he waited. David waited patiently. Patiently is a word that means calm, constant diligence without agitation, uneasiness, or discontent. Hmm, can anyone say that patiently? I do very few things patiently where I can do them without agitation, uneasiness, or discontent. Usually one of those describes how I am waiting patiently. You know, there's always one that I'm failing in. So um, it's interesting that David waited patiently for the Lord. But look at the reward, brothers and sisters. He, that is God, inclined to me and heard my cry. Oh, my goodness. It says he inclined to me. God leaned over the precipice of heaven so he could make sure he heard every word of David's cry. Of course, that's speaking figuratively. God is everywhere and omniscient, knowing all things past, present, and future at the same time. And so our God is able to hear David's cry without inclining. But that's how David saw it. That's how the Holy Spirit led David to write it, that God inclined his ear towards him and heard his cry. And then, what's the result of that? The result of that is, he drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog. Well, pit of destruction or miry bog are usually associated with, are usually associated with um, death and Hades. So, you know, it was a great distress for David. But here's the, also the incredible part, and set my feet upon a rock. Oh, brothers and sisters, set is a transitive verb. It means to, to place or fix or to cause to rest in a standing posture. What's interesting is, you know, when you set a book on a shelf versus when you set, when you go and set a book on a shelf, it stands on its end versus laying something down. So when your God is setting it up in a standing posture, and what is he setting it upon? A his feet upon a rock. And I believe that rock is the rock, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the chief cornerstone. Making my steps secure. Making is another uh, interesting word here. It's in a present participle, a present tense participle. Um, and it's, it's causing, compelling, creating, continuing the very act of God doing these things. He's making my steps secure. So we see God actively working in David's life here in just the first two verses of this psalm. And then verse 3, oh, what a glorious verse this is. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. 
He put a new song in my mouth. God put that song in David's mouth, a new song. There's many songs that, psalms that begin with this, particularly Psalms 96, 98, and 149 begin with, um, Sing to the Lord a new psalm. Psalm 40 is the only one, though, that tells us why. It's very particular in that the psalmist waited patiently for the Lord for some deliverance. And God hears him and rescues him. And one of the things he does for him in this deliverance is he gives him a new song and puts it in his mouth, a song of praise to our God. So that is just absolutely amazing. Um, before we go on to many, to the second part of that particular verse, I'd like to read you something from David Mathis from Desiring God Organization, John Piper's organization. He wrote a very interesting um, uh, little article here from uh, New Mercies, New Music. And I'll quote, and this isn't just true in this age, but for eternity. God will never cease to inspire awe in us about the breadth and depth and height of who he is and his mind-boggling love for us in Christ. And we get the joy of continuing to create and sing new songs of praise to him for it. If we take our cues from the worship of heaven in the book of Revelation and get a little foretaste now of the feast of worship to come, it seems God would have us blend new songs with the old as we prepare to sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. Psalm 89, verse 1. In Revelation 15, 3, we're told that those who had conquered the beast sing the song of Moses, which is an old song from Exodus 15 and also Deuteronomy 32. But they also sing the song of the Lamb, a new song, so also the worshipers of heaven are said to be singing a new song in Revelation 14.3. And in Revelation 5.9, the four living creatures and the 24 elders sang a new song. Forever God will continue to show the immeasurable riches of his grace in the kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2.7. And as he does for his glory and for our joy, we will keep singing new songs. Praise God, brothers and sisters. That was encouraging to my heart when I was um, reading that, and I was hoping it would encourage you as well, that God puts a new song in David's mouth, and hopefully um, our own, at least in eternity, we can sing the song of praise, sing the, for the Lamb of God. It's interesting, the, the little change after that height we rose to, to see the verse 3 continues, many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. I've got to turn my page to see my notes. I found it very interesting that um, if you notice the first part of these songs, it's first part of Psalm uh, verses 1 and 2, it's all, and even into verse 3, it's all very personal pronouns. I, me, my, and then many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. I wonder if it's because he sang a new song. When you sing, you vocalize something and you vocalize it loud. So he's singing a new psalm of praise to our God. And many, I believe, heard it and will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. First, God has to open our eyes so that we will see. And when we see then we know the fear of the Lord because the Bible tells us the, um, the God who has created us is angry with those who have not 
um, taken advantage of the only way that men can be restored to a right relationship with God is through the man Jesus Christ. God has given Jesus Christ for that very purpose that we can be restored to a right relationship through his son Jesus Christ and the finished work that he has accomplished on Calvary's cross. So the proper perspective is, as we're taught in the Proverbs, even as young children, many of you I'm sure know, the Proverbs 1 verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And Proverbs 9, 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, followed by Psalm 111 verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And you know, when it's not fear as in we're um, frightened by scary things, it's the fear of knowing that our maker, our very creator God, knows what goes on in our lives. He knows everything about us. He knows the very number of hairs on our head. He knows everything about us. He knows our inner thoughts, our inner motivations, why we do things. God is aware of all of this. And as we have more knowledge of this, we should be fearful that this God knows and we know in ourselves when we lie and when we do things we shouldn't do, take things that don't belong to ourselves, have wrong thoughts about other people that we get angry with them and are short-tempered and, and hate others. Um, all these other things that come into our lives when we have incorrect thoughts about um, the opposite sex, you know, because God tells us that the only place for sex is in the confines of marriage. Anything outside of sex is not correct. But God does bless everything inside marriage. So, you know, it's not that God meant it to be bad. And sometimes in our society, I think we push that too much and people, we have guilt and feelings that are not correct about that when all it is is we do what God had prescribed. Um, that's the difficult part for us because we have all been tainted with sin ever since the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve fell into sin. All their um, prodigy, all their heirs, which we all are, we all come from Adam and Eve all the way back through history, um, we all have that same problem. We have the curse of sin on us, and it's, um, it is a big problem. And then when we know all that, we can fear God properly and know that he knows everything about us and that that's why we have guilt because we know we're sinners. And that's what is the core, one of the core problems with our hearts. We are sinners and we know we're sinners and we know that God knows that we're sinners and so we feel guilt and shame. And the only way to get rid of that is coming to Christ and when we do, God takes all those away. He washes us white as snow, just as the hymn we sang. But, again, I deviate off from my notes, and I don't want to make it too long, because we're only at verse 3. And this has got 17 verses in it. <laughs> and I was thinking, oh, this is going to be quick, but <sighs> let us move on, brothers and sisters, and put their trust in the Lord, the vast part of that. Do you know, back then, um, you don't see faith very much promoted in the Old Testament. It's all about trusting God because we didn't have anything to put faith in. There was no Messiah. There was no Lord Jesus Christ. But now we know what to put our faith in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. So back then we trusted God. And that's a form of faith when you're placing your trust in the Lord. So let's move on. 
Verse 4, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust and who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. After a lie. Blessed is, to, is the man who makes the Lord his trust is true. And that's one of the ways that we are certain that God did indeed answer David's uh, cry and when the Lord inclined his head towards him and when he waited patiently for the Lord. But I like that in verse, there's some cl clarification to his trust. Um, in verse 5, or excuse me, who does not, it, 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 we're not speaking singular here of a man, it makes the Lord his trust. Because remember we talked about in verse 3, many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Trust in the Lord. In verse 4 we see, blessed is a man, one of the many who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud. That's very interesting because the proud resist God. God is angry with the proud because they are, no, they are not, um, they are not humble and understanding of their position before God, that we are all sinners. The proud speak lies of ignorance and malice because all they know are the lies of the flesh and of this world. The lies lead to idolatry and sin, and we love our sin and our idols. The way of the unrepentant sinner is hard. We should pray for God's mercy on our souls. Verse 5. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. Praise God. That is um, just a, a, a verse of exclamation. Again, proclaiming what God has, his marvelous deeds towards us. I like again that I notice the us again, as in the verse 3 concluding, many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Apparently that had its results in that you have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. Many have heard and received those that saw and fear and put their trust in the Lord. And so they will proclaim and tell of them, yet they, they are more than can be told. I believe that's totally awesome and true because I know there's many times in my life, and I'm neglectful to uh, proclaim what great things God has done in my life and how he is merciful and even just the little things that happen on a daily basis. So um, to be multiplied more than can ever be told is absolutely right on. But I'm going to move on to part two, verses six through 10, and tell the great news of deliverance. So I'm going to change my page here as well. And read verses 6 through 10 with you of Psalm 40. In sacrifice and offerings you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips. As you know, O Lord, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. 
I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. Excuse me. I have a note here that says the mystery of God in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ who spoke in the first person to us through the Holy Spirit to write this psalm by the hand of David. And we see that in the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to us here in verses 6 through 8, which is what was repeated in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 9. It's weighty to look upon this and think that even back then, I mean, we know God spoke to us throughout the Old Testament. Matter of fact, I have several pages of where God did. I also have a note that we should read Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 9. So, brothers and sisters, I'm going to turn there. I don't know if you have to. I'm pretty quick because I have my mine already tabbed in anticipation that I would read Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 9. So if you choose to go there with me, brothers and sisters, I invite you to do so now. I'm even going to back up to one verse before that, starting in verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Wow. Isn't that, like, it's just so transcendent, you know, that it was spoken of in the psalm 700 years before Christ came into the world. I think I'm right about that. How many number of years? I might be wrong. Um, um, but that here again, it's quoted directly that Christ said these things while he was on earth. So it's pretty incredible to me. And that was, um, it made it more difficult for me to try and expound upon it because these are the words of Christ. And so um, he is my God. Hopefully he's your God too. Those that have placed their faith in Jesus Christ and are trusting him for their salvation. That um, It's interesting that it begins with, in sacrifices and offerings you have not delighted. For, for a long time, the Jewish nation has been offering sacrifices daily in the temple. A lot of blood was poured out in that place. A lot of um, death occurred in that place. Um, uh, in the temple there in Jerusalem. It says, God does not delight in sacrifices and offerings that are not offered with a right heart attitude. That's what the Jews were missing. It had become legalism to them. These are the rules, and this is how we accomplish these rules. They got lost in the rules. They got lost in the law of God, and they forgot God himself, that God desires mercy. Psalm 19, 14, verse 14 says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. God's interested in our meditations, what we think about, the words that come out of our mouth. 
In Psalm 50, verse 7 through 15, it reads, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, this again is the Father speaking in first person. We begin again. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel. I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls and drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. That's God speaking to the nation of Israel, telling them why they're falling short because they had made it into religion and had stopped worshiping the triune God of heaven who created all things. In Psalm 51, verses 15 through 17, it reads, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praises, for you will not delight in a sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Contrite is an interesting word. It's an adjective describing that heart. It literally means worn or bruised, hence brokenhearted for sin, deeply affected with grief and sorrow for having offended God, humble, penitent as a contrite sinner. And that's how God wants us to come before him, humbly, brokenhearted about what we have done. He doesn't want sacrifices. He required them back then but they were a foreshadow of the things that come because all the blood that was shed during that um, um, Levitical period in Israel's history didn't compare with the precious blood of the sinless Savior, Jesus Christ, who shed his blood on Calvary's cross for us. Nothing, all that blood did was just a covering, an, offer, uh, uh, um, an offering to God to a foreshadow of what would come the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, the sinless sacrifice. But you have given me an open ear. Jesus had an open ear to hear and obey, unlike Jeremiah where God proclaims this against Israel in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 7, verses, chapter 7, verses 21 through 26 reads, Thus the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, oh, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. Isn't that interesting? It struck me as, oh, you're right. During the 40 years of wandering as they were coming out of Israel, they did not have this offering the sacrifices. The sacrifices came later. But here's the reason why. But this command I gave them, Obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people. 
and walk in the way that I commanded you, that it may be well with you. But they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts and went backward, not forward. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day, yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. Wow. And that's the reason that, um, that's the difference. They did not incline and have ears to hear. They, they were stubborn and, and, and desiring evil. They were sinful men, much as we are today. But Jesus, it says, had an open ear. He heard all that God commanded and obeyed everything perfectly. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you have not required. Jesus did not come to negate the law, but to fulfill it. Matthew 5.18 says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus did not negate the law, the requirements of the law specified in Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. It was a shadow of what would be fulfilled in Christ's atoning death. Atoning is an interesting word too. It means to reconcile, to make amends, to call back into union. So Christ came so that we could once again have a union with him that the a lot, well, I was going to say the Jews, but all people, a lot of people have missed because the Bible does tell us that broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter therein but narrow is the way that leads to eternal life, and few find it. Sacrifices and offerings. I have a strange note on my page here that tells me I should go back and check something else out. But I think I'll just leave that note, and we'll move on to verse 7, because again, it's very interesting. Then I said, Behold, I have come. Jesus is speaking in the first person as the Holy Spirit led David to write this. I have come. He came in the incarnation. He was born of a virgin as prophesied in Isaiah. He lived amongst us and lived the only perfect sinless life. He kept the law perfectly. He became the sinless perfect sacrifice to offer himself freely in our place he received the wrath that we deserve for our sin. He became our propitiation and made peace with God through his sacrifice. In the scroll of the book, it is written in me. And oh my goodness, brothers and sisters, there's just, the more you dig, you don't think there's that many places, but ah, once you start looking, there's a lot of places in the Bible that speak of the pre-incarnate Christ and Christ coming. Back then it was usually referred to as the Messiah, so we see that a lot in the Old Testament, where the Messiah, who is Christ, is first revealed to us, beginning in the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve sinned and death entered into all the children of Adam and Eve, of whom I am and you are as well, brothers and sisters. Genesis chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, where it describes the fall of mankind, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field on your belly you shall go and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life 
I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We know that speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ because he crushed the head of the serpent and um, won back the title deed to the earth after his resurrection and all that stuff. I don't know exactly how that... Eh, well, I'm going to stay away from that rabbit trail um, and move on to Isaiah 53 verses... Um, I got all one through six, but I highlighted the important parts, or at least what I thought was... Uh, important in Isaiah 53. Um, it, I, I'm going to start with like verse 2. He who had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. That is a great messianic psalm that talks about the suffering of Christ. In the Old Testament, there's much more of Jesus Christ, the Messiah of God. He was uh, born in Bethlehem, as told in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. He was born of a virgin in Isaiah 7, 14, that he would come from the tribe of Judah in Genesis 49, 10, that the Messiah would be an heir of King David's throne in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 13, and again in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 7. He is written about in Genesis, Numbers, Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Psalms, Malachi, Hosea, Zechariah, and probably other places that I hadn't found in my research. It made me... This is from... Well, anyways, I'll just read to you what I wrote. Oh, to be on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples and the risen Christ as he spoke to them in Luke chapter... 24 verses 27 and beginning with Moses and all that the prophets beginning with Moses and all the prophets he that is Christ interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning him I've often loved that verse and, and have contemplated that to be on the road to Emmaus and to hear Jesus Christ explain all that and how their hearts must have burned within them as they went and their eyes were open and they saw all this. And then, of course, when Jesus breaks bread, their eyes are open and they realize that it is the risen Christ and he disappears from them. It's like, wow. And they, of course, it's dark. And you normally didn't travel around in Jerusalem after dark, you know, or I mean in the hill country to Jerusalem because that's where thieves and robbers were. But they said, get our sandals on. We got to hustle back to Jerusalem and go tell the disciples, you won't believe this story. Because anyways, incredible. I'm glad that... God recorded that for us to read in his holy scriptures in the gospel of Luke. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 19. I don't know why I got this in here, but I do. I will read it for you. But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish, it leads into the very imagery of the Levitical sacrificial system presents a picture of what God would require to satisfy his justice, a lamb without spot or blemish. And Jesus was the lamb of God, sinless perfection. He alone could satisfy the requirements of God's justice in order to redeem us. God did not overlook the debt of sin to be paid. Jesus paid, on, paid it all on Calvary's cross. As he breathed his last, it is finished. 
He paid the debt in full. That's in John chapter 19, verse 30. Verse 8 begins, I delight to do your I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. Jesus declares, I delight to do your will, O oh my God. In John chapter 5, verse 30, Jesus proclaims, I can do nothing on my own. I hear, as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not mine own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 6, chapter, uh, chapter 36, verses 37 through 40. A beautiful piece of uh, biblical verse. I would encourage you to memorize it. It's beautiful. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I certainly will not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of the Father who sent me, that all that he has given me, I shall lose none, but shall raise it up on the last day. And this is the will of the one who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him shall have everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Isn't that encouraging? Oh, brothers, sisters. That's one of the blessings about being able to prepare to expound God's word is I, I don't always dig this deep into God's word. And it's, it's a real blessing to my heart. And I hope you guys um, get an opportunity to dig deeper into the scriptures in your own personal Bible study. Uh, anyways, your law is in my heart. Jesus is presented in the gospel of Matthew as the son of David. And in the gospel of Mark as a servant. And in the gospel of Luke as the Son of Man, and in the Gospel of John as the Son of God. So we've just read two beautiful uh, passages from the Son of God presented to us in the Gospel of John. In Jeremiah 31, verse 33, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So God put the law, his law, into people's hearts, but it wasn't until, didn't come to full fruition until Christ came. Jesus said he delighted to do God's will, and the law is within my heart, that is Christ's heart. So he already was the perfect embodiment of God's will and God's law, being that he was the lawgiver. So... It makes perfect sense. In verse 9, we're actually leaving the portion where it says in Scripture that this was um, Christ speaking to us, or that at least is recorded in Hebrews chapter 10. And we go on to verse 9 and 10, and it says, uh, David declares, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. We should speak of God's deliverance. We should not remain silent to the congregation. By the way, if you notice, it says to the congregation. So I believe what God is telling us or helping us to understand here more fully is that 
among all other people that we know as the body of Christ, we should be more encouraged to speak what God is doing in our lives. Whenever God delivers us from a trial or a temptation or some other difficulty in our lives, we should run to the brothers and sisters and share with them what God is doing because it's a great encouragement not only to us but to other people, particularly Christians, because Christians of all people can understand when we tell them, oh, I was suffering with this trial or this particular temptation in my life. In my life, The world doesn't always understand things in that perspective, but brothers and sisters in Christ do understand, and we can often um, feel and have a better understanding of what you're saying, particularly when we start talking that it's God delivered us the world might think you're a little bit strange. It's still great, to, and we should declare it to the world, but you probably want to use, and I know we do, we tend to do a little bit different language. But in other words, we can more fully express God's deliverance when we express it to the congregation, fellow believers. So I think God would have us to do that. And we don't, and in verse 10, we shouldn't keep it hidden is what God tells us. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. That's what David is telling us, I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. So he was more than willing to declare to the congregation God's deliverance and of his faithfulness to him and his steadfast love. Thanking God for his steadfast love and faithfulness. Declare it to a watching world. Praise God for how he answers prayer or helps through trials and difficult circumstances. Help with jobs, with family, relationships, help with work and school. We should declare God's steadfast love and faithfulness every day. I challenge you to begin by telling your families and it'll get easier and then we can begin to tell the church and from there we can then go and tell the whole world of God's deliverance. Part three. Verses 11 through 17. Trusting in God for deliverance. Let's read together Psalm 40, verses 11 through 17. As for you, O Lord, you will not constrain your mercy. You will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have compassed me encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliver, deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. This is one of the interesting parts, twist to the psalm. It goes back to David's once again, uh, I think they call it an imprecatory prayer where he's asking for God's help because of his enemies have come against him. Well, um, 
God does not withhold his mercy. We can have confidence in God of his steadfast love and faithfulness leads to preservation. In verse 11, we see that. He declares that. It's interesting, he begins in verse 11 with your faithfulness will ever preserve me. Hmm. But then I got in verse 12, it begins, my note says, then life happens. And it does. For verse 12 says, for evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. Today we have a host of evils all around us and we're well aware of that. We have Satan lies. And we know that they have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. We see that in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, where it describes very clearly much of what we see today in that they have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Um, there's no doubt about it. Many things that are happening in our world are very discouraging and I'm sure there was much happening in, in David's world at the same time. But what I want to focus on a little bit more is David says, my iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. Each and every one of us know about our own personal sin. My sin overtakes me and I cannot see. We say that we cannot see a way forward as an expression of hopelessness. This is how our sin affects us. It overtakes us and then our hearts fail. We need to pray that God would open our eyes because he couldn't see. When God opens our eyes, we once again will see the path of salvation. That is Jesus Christ. And we can we know that the path of salvation begins at the foot of the cross. So we need to return to the foot of the cross. When you're lost in the struggles of this life and it feels like everything's out of control and, and things are just overwhelming you, remember the cross of Jesus Christ and go back to the foot of the cross of Jesus and there you will find consolation. There you will find strength to help you in that particular time. And while you're thinking on the prayer, the, uh, the cross of Jesus Christ, remember the Lord of heaven who spoke from the cross, it is finished. In other words, it's all been done. Everything has been accomplished in our, that's going to happen, past, present, and future. Jesus has completed it all there at the cross of Calvary and through his resurrection from the grave. And we can have confidence in that. And we can seek the Christ of God through the Bible, God's word. So when you think of the cross of Jesus Christ, remember his word that he spoke and that will take you right back to God's word. That's where you'll find comfort and solace and you'll find the get back on the right path and God will be able to help you once again. Verse 12 finishes, there are the, the iniquities that he cannot see are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Well, we discuss that. In verse 13, I like it. Uh, David declares, Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. What happened to I waited patiently for the Lord? But remember, God doesn't say that there's anything wrong with us asking him in prayer to make haste. So I, there's, it, at first it kind of confused me, and I was looking at it, and I realized that there's nothing wrong that the Lord... Waiting patiently is what we're called to do. 
But while we're waiting, we're in prayer, in communication with God. And while we're in prayer, we can say, Lord, deliver me from this particular trial. And it would be great if you hurry up and did it. So there's nothing wrong with that. And I believe that's what David is saying here. And I think part of it is because not only for the evils that encompassed him, but my iniquities have overtaken me. And we know that sin in our lives is, is, particularly if you're a Christian, you're very sensitive to it, and it begins to overwhelm us, and we want to be delivered from that. So um, I think that's what David is particularly saying here in this particular scripture, that, Lord, you would hurry up and deliver me from this particular sin. And for the other things, for the evils that have encompassed me beyond number, David prays in verse 14 and 15, Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say, Aha, aha. Here we see the deliverance of the Lord as our enemies are defeated, disappointed, and shamed. There's nothing wrong in praying that our enemies be defeated, disappointed, and shamed through the truth of God prevailing in our lives. And so it's, it's, enough, it's great that... Um, I like how he begins with it. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. So it, it's something that um, he's excited to share with us that, that God would be uh, pleased that he would actually deliver him. Um, sometimes the enemy... Um, of our own sin needs to be defeated. May God grant us the mercy we need to conquer sin in our lives that he may receive the glory. That's how I got out of that hard one right there because I wasn't sure where to go. But I did re realize, and I think it's um, important for us to realize that and we can also bring about, since there's um, many difficulties in our nation right now, that it is okay that we pray that God would put those who are an offense to Christ's church and who oppose God's church, that they would be put to shame and that they would be disappointed and would not achieve the results that they hope for. So I believe that's perfectly um, valid prayer. And David prayed it in his time. And I think we can use that as a model and pray it in our time and be encouraged to know that it is God's will that we can ask that um, we can... Remember, we have to ask rightly and not ask amiss, not to do it for our own comforts and pleasure, but do it for God's glory and God's will. And God's will is that the church of Christ would be advanced here upon the earth and that all who hear the message of the gospel would be saved. Verse 16, But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. Seek the Lord and rejoice and be glad in God's salvation. Love your salvation and proclaim, Great is the Lord. May we all be so glad and full of rejoicing that we would love the salvation of our God and proclaim, as with David did, Great is the Lord. And then once again, verse 17 closes again with that change of tone completely. As for me... I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me, and you are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. 
Isn't that an interesting contrast? It begins in the very beginning. I wait patiently for the Lord. And here, do not delay, oh my God. But it's interesting too that as for me, verse 17 again, I am poor and needy. That's the reality. We're all poor and needy. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Recognizing that we're poor in spirit, and needy, spiritually, we can come before God humbly seeking what he has to give, which is the person of his son, Jesus Christ, who is the propitiation for our sins. He has redeemed us. But the second part of that verse, but the Lord takes thought for me. Isn't that something to ponder? God thinks of us individually as peoples that for a moment, at any moment, that the creator of the universe who is almighty, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent would care to think of any one of us individually. But here even David records it as the spirit of God moved him. But the Lord takes thought of me. So we know that God does think about us and we can take comfort in that, that the Lord indeed does have us in his mind and that he is our help and our deliverer and that God, sometimes it's okay to pray. Do not delay, oh my God. So it's, it's good to pray. Um, it's good to learn to wait patiently for the Lord, but there's nothing wrong with asking God to hurry up and hasten to our, to our, to our cry you know, for deliverance. So I found that fascinating in the way that this particular psalm went back and forth with those things and even the Lord Jesus Christ speaking from eternity through it. So I found it great and very interesting. I hope you did also as we expounded this particular verse of Scripture. I'd like to read you something from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Um, it's particularly in reference to verse 2, which is somewhere lost in my notes up here. But I'll just read you what Spurgeon said. He said, quote, The Redeemer's work is done. He reposes on the firm ground of his accomplished engagements. He can never suffer again. Forever does he reign in glory. What a comfort to know that Jesus, our Lord and Savior, stands on a sure foundation in all that he is and does for us, and his goings forth in love are not liable to be cut short by failure in years to come. For God has fixed him firmly. He is forever and eternally able to save unto the uttermost them that come unto God by him, seeing that in the highest heavens he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Praise God, brothers and sisters. Would you bow with me, uh, bow your heads with me as we close our time in prayer. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you for the opportunity to delve into your word and explore how mighty and awesome a God you are and how you speak to us and understand us so completely. Lord, you have given us much to think about, Lord, and ponder as you have thoughts of us individually and personally, Lord. And Lord, that you are ever present and ready to deliver us from times of trial. Help us to grow in wisdom. Help us, Lord, to grow in the fear of you and have a right understanding of you. Help us to grow in humility. Help us to grow 
in patience, Lord, to wait upon you for your deliverance. For we ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.